very difficult subject, particularly in this generation. And I think we should run this as a discussion if there are questions or um, issues that you wish to raise. If I'm able to, I'm happy to, I'm happy to try to answer. Let me first make a few remarks, try to put the subject in perspective, try to show the correct attitude towards this subject and also try to show why it's as difficult as it, as it is. <clears throat> the problem really is that when we talk about intermarriage, marriage between Jew and non-Jew, there are two factors that are involved. There's the fact that the people are Jewish and non-Jewish. That has to be understood what, means, what it means to be a Jew. And there is the question of marriage. And we have to understand correctly what marriage is. The reason that intermarriage is a problem in this generation is because we don't really understand correctly the difference between Jew and non-Jew, and we don't really understand what marriage is. But without those two elements, without knowing what marriage is, and what a Jew is, so then obviously there will be no approach to the subject. So let's try to, let's try to understand why this subject is uniquely placed in all of Jewish thinking. This particular problem, this transgression, prohibition of a Jew marrying a non-Jew has some unique stringencies that, all, that no other prohibition in the Torah does. There are certain aspects and facets of this that are calling down upon a person who does such a thing, marries a non-Jew, certain consequences, certain extreme consequences that no other transgression or, or act that a Jew can do uh, causes. Right? And the question is, why exactly is that so? What is so uniquely severe about this particular about this particular action? And why is it, that if that is true, that it is so little understood and so becoming so among the Jewish world today, those who don't have a traditional knowledge or attachment to Jewish values, why is this problem escalating and why is there no sensitivity to this, to this area? In order to understand this correctly, <coughs> we have to know a few things. The first is, uh, but listen carefully, please, to every detail, not to get emotionally carried away or attached to one aspect of the subject, not to understand it objectively and clearly. The, the basis of the subject is that Jews and non-Jews are entirely different creatures, not completely different, utterly, completely and utterly different. There's no, there's no similarity between the soul uh, of a Jew and the soul of a non-Jew. The part that you have to hear most clearly is that we're not talking about better or worse. We live in a generation that is so liberally um, free-thinking and so... Western society has as its primary value, perhaps, the libertarian ethic, and therefore we tend to hear this kind of statement as bigoted and narrow and prejudiced. So let's make clear from the outset that we're not talking here about the question of better or, not, or, or worse where the source of a Jewish soul is in the spiritual world, in the Kabbalistic structure, and where a non-Jewish soul is located at its root in the, non in the Kabbalistic description of all the higher realms, is not our subject for this evening's discussion. Not our subject. What is our subject is the fact that down here, the manifestation of what we call a Jew, and that manifestation of the human that we call a non-Jew, both of which are created in the same original image, that same projection of the same ineffable and transcendent source, come down here as two totally different things. It's got, I'll repeat it again. It's got nothing to do with better or worse. The reason that you cannot marry a non-Jew is not because you're better in any way. In fact, that's uh, seriously doubtful. 
Seriously doubtful. If there's a discussion about who's fulfilling their roles these days better, it's not so clear. The non-Jewish world is certainly not living up to what it was designed to be, but there's unfortunately no question about the fact that we aren't either. And if you want to judge goodness, we judge it not by intrinsic qualities, because intrinsic qualities are not good or bad. They're simply the given raw material that you start with. We judge goodness by how much you're doing with your raw material. We don't judge where the raw material starts, whether it's better or worse or higher or low is not relevant. What is relevant is what you manufacture and what you produce with your raw material. Is a non-Jewish world using its raw material in, in the terms of humanity doing what it should be? It could hardly be worse. Is the Jewish world right now achieving what it should be achieving in terms of its historic and transcendent destiny? We are in the most abysmal state of chaos and shambles and the most, the most shameful situation of degradation. Yes, who's doing worse? Oh, it's hard to tell. Hard to tell. So we're not talking here about good or bad, right? We're not talking about a non-Jew being a wonderful person. There's no question that you can have a relationship with a non-Jew. You can have a non-Jewish person who is sensitive and deep and connects with you emotionally and intellectually and psychically, etc. There's no question about that. We're not, we're not saying that you can't have a successful relationship with a non-Jew. Many of the tragedies of these situations now is because a Jew and a non-Jew have entered a relationship that they shouldn't have entered in the first place because our whole lifestyle and our whole form of contact, male-female contact, is not the way it's designed to be in Jewish living in the first place. And therefore you end up in a situation where there is a relationship. Then you have the tragedy of what do we do now since, you know, I'm in love with this person and they're not Jewish and we enter the zone of prohibition. But... Um, of course you can have a wonderful relationship with a non-Jew, but you cannot marry a non-Jew, you cannot marry a non-Jew because the components of the soul that are necessary to enable you to marry that person are just absent. Got nothing to do with better or worse. If you want a very crude analogy, just like a man cannot marry a man, although that possibly needs <laughs> emphasis in this generation too, just like a man cannot marry a man, because the necessary spiritual components are absent, two men cannot marry each other. Because the necessary components of locking into each other spiritually, having the right components that, that plug in and that interconnect spiritually are absent in the case of two men. And it's got nothing to do with the fact that they could have an incredible relationship. In fact, the, the deeper sources say that the love that a man can have for a man is potentially greater than he can have for a woman. The reason is that when a man loves a man deeply, there is no vested interest at all. There's pure love. It's a pure love. There's no vested interest. Right? The male-female relationship always involves, always involves some component of vested interest. There's a tremendous work that has to be done in man-woman relationship to, ra to, to raise it above the vested interest of the bodily and the physical. Whereas when two women or two men love each other deeply, you don't have the vested interest. Intrinsically, you don't have it. That's why the love of David and Jonathan is described as the deepest and most pure love that there was. But that love that can exist between two men is completely irrelevant to the issue of whether they can marry each other. You cannot, they cannot get married. Marriage is a very special spiritual concept. It's not, it's not what, the, what the West or the secular world or what you happen to call marriage. Marriage is not people who move in and live together. That's got nothing to do with marriage. That's two bodies relating and two personalities relating. That can be immensely successful. And a Jew and a non-Jew can have an immensely successful relationship. Often it's not successful. Often social norms and prejudices and all sorts of other things creep in in the relationship founders because of the religious issue. But it's not necessarily so. You can have a marvelous relationship with a non-Jew. But you cannot get married to a non-Jew because in Torah, in Judaism, marriage is a spiritual bond. The word we use for marriage is Kiddushin. Kiddushin means a sanctification. It's something that happens <coughs> on a higher plane. The fact that two bodies move into the same home <coughs> and live together successfully, emotionally and physically has got nothing to do with marriage. <coughs> of course you can do that with a non-Jew, and of course two men could do that, and two women could do that. 
that's got nothing to do with marriage. Marriage is a very spiritual, very specific, transcendent mechanism that lives in the world of sanctity of Kedusha. And therefore, it fits just like the body follows certain biological rules in this world, the soul follows certain spiritual transcendent rules in that world. And a Jew and a non-Jew just do not have the components that are required to get married. It's got nothing to do with being better or worse at all. And I hope that point is, that point is clear. Now, let's try to, before you ask any questions, let's try to follow this through just a little bit and understand some of the points. First of all, the difference between Jew and non-Jew, to explain that and understand it Kabbalistically and spiritually from its root is a very difficult thing to do, and I doubt we'll be able to do that at all tonight. I'd just like to bring out one facet of that subject, which goes no further than trying to illustrate or perhaps give some feel to the fact that we are particularly deficient in that area in this generation. Now, this is not trying to prove anything or try to... I'm not trying to illustrate for you the difference between Jew and non-Jew. I'm trying to show you only how blunted this issue, how confused this issue is, and, 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 and demonstrate that that's the reason that people are entering this zone in a way that calls into question... Let me, let me put it to you like this. Stay carefully with me. I once heard one of the great Torah sages of this generation say the following thing. I'll tell you the discussion, the conversation, exactly the way it occurred. It's a remarkable thing. Learn many things from this besides the difference between Jew and non-Jew. He said this. He said that he described his experience of being present when one of the greats of the previous generation, one of the Torah leaders of the previous generation, had been discussing a certain subject. And this great man from the previous generation had said the following thing. He said, I was once approached by a young man, listen carefully to this, to follow through the steps of this discussion. <coughs> he said, I was once approached by a young man who asked me why an entire generation, he meant a generation of Jews, was swept away by such a foolish philosophy. That was his question. Why was a generation of Jews swept away and so convinced and so deeply committed, so, so powerfully swept away by such an empty and foolish philosophy as they were? He was referring, of course, to communism and socialism. This question was put to this Torah sage. This was well during the days of the, the power of the communist idea and its, and its application in the world. And he wanted to know, since he regarded the whole communist, and, this is not a subject tonight at all, but he wanted to know why. Since the communist and socialist idea is such a false idea, it goes so thoroughly against the notion of the way a human being is created in terms of an output that is motivated by a certain personal certain personal gain, again, not our subject, philosophically not our subject tonight, but why was a generation swept away? It's much easier for us to understand this question today, since we see that that world has collapsed and we, we see it exposed for, for what it was. But during the time when it was powerful, it was exceedingly powerful, and a generation of Jews were swept away. In fact, without going into the history, anyone who has any connection with it knows that young Jews of the early part of the century were so powerfully swept away by the communist idea that many of them left the yeshivas. Many of them were swept away from the power of Torah learning and its depth right, by this new philosophy. They were swept away very powerfully. People tell of the time when Trotsky came to speak in a certain town that the whole yeshiva was completely empty. There was one bocha left. I happen to know who it was. One boy left in the whole yeshiva. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky is on record as having said that when he was 15 years old, I mean, this, 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 this strains all, all, all credulity. He said when he was 15 years old and everybody flocked Right, to, to, to subscribe to the communist idea, the mashgiach and his yeshiva paid him five rubles a month to stay in yeshiva. Paid him five rubles a month. You know what that means? 
That means that a young man who later became the leader of his generation, that's how great his potential was, the only way that his great teacher could induce him to stay in Yeshiva was by paying him money. That means there was not even a possibility of philosophical argument. He couldn't even approach this young man on the basis of a philosophical and ideological argument. He had to pay him money, and at age 15, five rubles a month meant more to him than following a, a philosophy, and he stayed in Yeshiva. But it, it shows you that there was an incredible draw and drive that motivated this thing. Now, when this young man asked me this question, why was a generation swept away by such a false ideology? I answered him as follows. Listen to the Torah answer to this, because it's remarkably instructive. I'm sure that if you were asked that question, and I admit to you that if I were asked that question, I would start looking in the sociological and psychological structure of the generation and what motivated and what interested it. I would start looking in the background causes, and I, that's not what this Torah sage answered. He answered as follows. Of course, as a, as a sage would, he looked into the Gemara, into the Talmud, and he repeated what it says over there. The Talmud says the following thing. Once every 70 years, Achas B'Shivim Shona, once every 70 years, a star rises, which misguides the ship's captains or the ship's navigators. In other words, listen carefully. The Gemara says that every 70 years, a star rises which is out of its place in the constellation. That means that everything else is in place. But there's a star that's taken out of place. Which means, which means, you see, once in 70 years is the Torah's way, the oral law's way of saying once in every human lifetime. 70 years is a classic lifetime. And therefore, once every 70 years means that every lifetime, every cycle of a lifetime in the world has its own ordeal. The ordeal is that Hashem takes a star and He moves it out of sync. He presents an ideology to a generation that is false and it's designed to mislead you. And if you navigate by that star, you'll be led into destruction and found on the rocks. But it's done as an ordeal for the generation. Of course, all the rest of the stars are left in place. If you keep your wits about you and you keep your head straight and you look at the rest of them, you'll see how to navigate. But that particular star is moved out of sync, complete aberration, as a test for the generation. It has nothing to do with the psyche of the generation and how they're motivated and all the political and socio-economical factors and historical factors. That's not where you look. Hashem tests the generation with a specific test, which is an aberration of logic, and it becomes an extremely powerful motivation. Now, that's a fascinating discussion and there's a lot to say about it. But what I want to share with you primarily is the next step. When he said that, I'm, I'm now talking in the words of the sage from whom I heard this. When he said that, I turned to him and asked the following question, and Baruch Hashem, he had the presence of mind to ask this question. This is obviously a question to ask. I turned to him and I said to him, what's the star that misleads our generation? That means you and me. You see, that star has collapsed. In fact, it's well known, the Chovetz Chaim. The Chovetz Chaim died in 1933. The Chovetz Chaim predicted exactly when communism would fall. He died in 1933. He predicted the year in which it would collapse. People were amazed. How did he know that? But the answer is very simple. The Gemara says once every 70 years. And the communism collapsed exactly 70 years. Exactly 70 years. Probably to the month and the day, for all I know. Exactly 70 years after it held sway in the world. So the Chavetz Chaim said exactly when it would end. It's simple. The Gemara says so. So then that must mean that when the communist thing collapsed, our generation must be tested by something else. <coughs> so I turned to him and I said to him, <coughs> What is the test of the Jews of our generation? What is the ideology? What's the star that misleads our generation? And he said to me, I think it's the blurring of the distinction between Jew and non-Jew. That's what he said. You know what that means? Remarkable thing. It means that young Jews of this generation do not have an intrinsic sense and sensation of the fact that they're Jewish and that that makes them different. Not talking about better or worse. Forget that. Not talking about that. But they don't have a sensation of being Jewish. By the way, people in this generation don't have a sensation of being male or female either, you know. 
which is part of the problem of our generation. Women are still a lot more healthy in this area. All the spiritual sources say that women, women retain their natural spiritual sensitivity when men, when men become... Men start to hear a, a buzzing in their heads and they start to, to lose it rapidly in every generation. Women stay much more attached to what it is they have to do, to their responsibility and to their sense of identity, much more healthily attached to it. But be that as it may, it means that the Jews of this generation, not because of any sociological cause or historical cause or psychic cause, or, but because there's a specific ordeal that the final generation will have, and it gets ripped out of the consciousness of a generation of Jewish youth, and they no longer have an intrinsic awareness of the fact that they're Jewish. It's a remarkable thing. You know that during the communist era, by the way, it's a fascinating thing to know. Do you know that in the communist era, the Jews who led the communist movement, you know that all the leaders, the ideological leaders of the communist movement were Jews. Despite the fact that they were ideological leaders, you have to hear this, it's bizarre. Despite the fact that they were the ideological leaders and the thinkers of the communist movement, and the communist movement was explicitly an atheistic movement, they were so richly aware of their Jewishness that it's very hard for us to imagine. You know, they, they spoke to each other in Yiddish. They spoke to each other in Yiddish. And one of the biggest insults that they could say to each other was, do rest via God, you speak like a non-Jew. <laughs> that, that's a, it's a remarkable thing. In fact, it's well known that Trotsky once was in, the, in a meeting with Stalin, and he turned to his associates and he said to him, amazing thing, he said to them in Yiddish in front of Stalin, he said, he said in Yiddish, when this non-Jew leaves, we'll have a minion for Mincha. The way he put it was, the way he put it, the way he put it, the way he put it in Yiddish was, when this uncircumcised fellow leaves, we'll have a minion for Mincha. Do you understand what that means? That means a person who didn't believe in it himself, who didn't relate to it anyway, was not practicing anyway, complete re- a, per- a person who rejected his Judaism, but there was an intrinsic awareness of what it means that you're Jewish and it's an indelible, inalienable part of your, of your identity that yeah, in this generation we don't have it. It's a remarkable thing. We don't have it. It's been ripped out of... How far does it go? How far does it go? What I'm telling you is that you either have it or you don't. If you have it, yes, then it runs in your veins and you know that you're Jewish long before any Kabbalistic explanations or spiritual... There's an intrinsic aspect of your personality that you... The only place you find this still, the rich awareness of what it means to be Jewish, is by the non-Jews. They haven't forgotten. The non-Jewish world doesn't forget. They know exactly what the difference is between a Jew and a non-Jew. Absolutely clear about it. But it's we you keep thinking that we them. Incidentally, just as a broader perspective, it's not our subject again, as a broader perspective, you know that when the Jewish world does something that reflects itself in the non-Jewish world, it's an axiom of spiritual thinking, that what happens in the heart of the, of the spiritual reality of the Jewish people reflects itself in the outside world. Do you know that the distinction between Jew and non-Jew is what's blurred in our minds? Do you know what the consequence is in the non-Jewish mind? The blurring of the distinction between the human and the animal. You see that hand in hand with the philosophy, do you understand this? Hand in hand with the confusion in Jewish minds of whether Jew and a non-Jew are different, there's a confusion in the mind of man in general, whether humans and animals are, are in fact different. This is the first generation in the history of the world that teaches explicitly that you're a biological organism, that there's no difference. Is it something you have to understand intellectually? Not at all. In a previous generation, 100 years ago, 150, certainly 200 years ago, if you would have come along and told a human being that he's a biological creature, an accidental version of an orangutan or a gorilla, that he would not have been able to, he wouldn't have had a place to put what you were saying. Why intellectually, scientifically? No, because there was a natural innate consciousness that is humans are human and animals are animals. Can it be explained scientifically? Probably not. Can it be justified logically? Probably not. The scientists probably have the upper hand in that argument. 
But can you know it intrinsically? Absolutely. But this generation doesn't know it intrinsically. This generation literally feels that, it's a, that it is a... cannot tell the distinction. This is the first generation in the history of the world that teaches mankind, by and large, that teaches that we are accidental biological animals and that there's no meaning or any higher reality at all. There's never been a, there's never been a, a segment of a community anywhere in the history of the world that's ever done that. Why have they lost that distinction between man and animal? Because in the heart of the Jewish people, there's a lack of distinction between Jew and non-Jew. Once distinctions start to go like that, then, then all the distinctions go. <coughs> uh, you know, uh, you know what's even remarkable? I'll, I'll come to questions. Give me a chance just to build a picture first, and we'll stop the discussion. You know, what's remarkable is that even when, even when intellectual mankind rationalizes, and they use their humanity, they can't tell the difference. You know, <coughs> a certain young rabbi was traveling on a plane uh, a few months ago, and it so happened that the lady next to him was served the airline, uh, <coughs> vegetarian airline meal. <coughs> so when he saw her getting the vegetarian meal, he, he instinctively turned to her and he said to her, Oh, are you also Jewish? He thought maybe she, was had, she ordered vegetarian food for kosher reasons. The lady was not Jewish. She drew herself up to her full height and she said to him, No, I, I'm a virtuous vegetarian, very ideological vegetarian. She said, I do not eat other animals. <laughs> In other words, we're part of the family of animals. We are... And we are, <laughs> we are another species like they are, and therefore, and therefore, since we're part of the animal world, yes, it's not fair, I don't eat them. So he answered in a certain way, but you know what the right answer to that statement is? I don't eat other animals. You know what the right answer is? Why not, lady? Other animals do. You hear it? You hold your own animal, right? They have no problem eating each other. What's your problem? Take a bite out of his neck. <laughs> what's the problem? If you hold your... Yeah, what's going on? If you hold your an animal, you're a species like other animals. They all eat each other without any compunction. They have no moralizing, you know, conscience about eating each other. So what's your problem? If you really believe you're an animal, eat him. You hear what's going on? It's because she's human that she has this debate. It's because... This, the proof that she's not an animal is that this is an issue for her, but she cannot see that. She uses that logic to teach herself that it's a remarkable thing. Why? Because the distinction between man and animal is an innate, intrinsic, long before it becomes a scientific or spiritual, logic, logical and reasoned debate, which it is as well, although we're not going to that now. There's an intrinsic... Yeah. The difference between Jew and non-Jew is something that in the history of Judaism lived in the blood and the consciousness of a Jew. Right? Whether, whether that's right or wrong, can be justified, cannot be justified, is enough, is not enough, is not the point now, but it was a real thing. Let me share with you an experience I had that brought it to me, to my consciousness as sharply as Again, I'm not, we're not talking about right or wrong, whether it should be this way, whether it's necessary, not necessary, not getting into that. All I'm trying to establish now is that we have a debate like we're having this evening because we don't have this intrinsic, we don't know this intrinsically. When you lived in a generation where Jews and non-Jews were completely separated, where there was a ghetto-type consciousness of a Jew and there was just no possibility, the lifestyle and the values and the goals, the consciousness of Jews and non-Jews were so radically different, then intermarriage was, was a virtual impossibility. It was a, it was a major aberration, but today... Perhaps the best way I can illustrate it is, I'll tell you a story that happened to me that brought it home to me remarkably powerfully. I, I, I used to know a certain family <coughs> in a certain town, in a town where most of the Jews were very traditionally attached. It's becoming less and less so now. But a certain town in a certain country, which for now shall be nameless, where the Jewish community by and large was extremely traditionally attached. 
This particular Jew, many, many Jews sent their children to Jewish day schools. Virtually all Jews belonged to some kind of a synagogue, a shul. At least the major events of their lives revolved around the shul. By and large, that was true. This particular family had two daughters, and I happened to visit the home on a few occasions. And what struck me about that home is that it didn't have a vestige of Judaism. It was very unusual in that community. I don't think I ever saw a mezuzah, so as I recall. I saw nothing Jewish in this, candlesticks or a siddur. I saw nothing of any Jewish sort of artifact or significance. The two girls lived within walking distance of a Jewish day school, to which most of the Jews in the area went. They were sent to a more distant public school, a non-Jewish public school, that was more distant than the local Jewish day school. That was unusual, but that's where they were sent. In other words, no Jewish education, no Jewish input. <coughs> the older daughter married a non-Jew, and her father disowned her. You hear that? He disowned her. When the younger daughter told me this, <coughs> it was two years after the older daughter's marriage, he had not seen his daughter for two years, and he'd never seen his grandson. Now, what is going on? What is going on? This is a man who brings up his daughter with zero Jewish education. Absolutely nothing. She dates non-Jewish boys. He says nothing about it. Right? He's, a, he's an admirer. He's an admirer of non-Jewish culture and society and has no problem with it. Perhaps one shouldn't. And when she takes the natural step and marries a non-Jew, he disowns her. He's never spoken to her again. What's going on? But you know what's going on? He grew up in an ethos, in an ambience where in his mind, you can't bury a non-Jew, you just don't do that. That you don't do, do anything else Jewish, there's a certain loyalty to your people. You continue a tradition that you're only here because Jew, Jews in previous generations married Jews. That's why you're here. It's an intrinsic aspect of your personality. That's who you are. You can't marry a non-Jew. So that's with him being better or worse. On the contrary, in that home it was quite clear that the non-Jewish culture was to be admired. There's no problem with that. They went to the opera and the ballet and everything else and they were admirers of literature and so forth. No problem with non-Jewish culture. But you, can't, you don't marry a non-Jew. But the daughter grew up in a generation where the stars being moved. To her, there's no difference. This is a wonderful young man. Why shouldn't she marry him? She thinks, do you understand what's happening? Her father thinks that she's a traitor to her people, and she thinks her father's become psychotically deluded. <laughs> she thinks he's taken leave of his senses, and she, he thinks she's a traitor to her people. Janice, there's no communication between How can they talk about that? How can they communicate about that? What's he going to convey to her, that it should be in your blood? How can he say that to her? That's the problem of our generation. And therefore, in summary... We need to work through it and understand it. We need to understand the halakhic aspects. We need to know. We don't have this in our blood. It's not an intrinsic part of our consciousness. We need to understand what it means. What are the facts? The facts halakhically, let me try and go through them before stopping for questions and discussion. The facts are that it's invalid. You cannot marry a non-Jew. There's just no way that condition can take effect. Right? You can, again, you can live in a house with a non-Jew. You can do all that. But there's no way that that spiritual bond called marriage can take effect. If a person's not interested in that, they've got no attachment to their people, they don't have concept of loyalty to their people and the importance of Jewish continuity, etc., etc., they want to have an emotional and physical relationship with somebody of the opposite sex who's not Jewish, then, then fine, what can I say to them? But if they're interested in what is the Jewish people and its continuity, if they're interested in what it means loyalty to your people, even though you may not have had much input in your background, if they're interested in what Kiddushin is, which is that spiritual bond of marriage, which is two souls locking in, that. In a, in, a, in, a, in a rich spiritual mesh which lifts both of them to become an entity that neither of them was before. If that's what the subject is, then like it or, or not, fortunately or unfortunately, it takes a Jewish man and a Jewish woman for that to occur. A non-Jewish man, non-Jewish woman can also form a certain kind of a bond. It has different rules, it has different mechanisms. And that's not our subject now. But that, that is 
<coughs> is what it is. What are the alternatives? What are the alternatives? What are the alternatives? So first of all, there shouldn't be such a relationship. It shouldn't be a person who has any, any sense of awareness of what it means to be part of the Jewish people. One of the reasons that this is considered a worse sin or transgression than others is because unlike other sins where there's a technical transgression of a, of a divine commandment or instruction, here there's a, there's a betraying of the chain that links Jews throughout the, throughout the centuries. Here there's a, there's a betraying of one's people. Even if one doesn't have a sense of anything high, if you have no sense of the Jewish people at all, whatsoever, like unfortunately many modern Jews don't in surveys in America, done three years and three and four years ago, that they showed they showed clearly that 52% of American Jews have no sense of attachment at all to the Jewish people. That means they don't list themselves as belonging to anything Jewish. And they, in that survey, they were prepared to accept the Jewish sports club as Jewish identity, let alone a non-Orthodox synagogue or some religious affiliation. They don't any Jewish association. If a person lifts weights at a, at, a non, at a Jewish gymnasium that is Jewish in its social kind of a thing, they call that association with the Jewish people. 52% of American Jews have no association whatsoever they either associate with something else or nothing at all. So there is very little discussion about Jewish continuity. The, 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 the accusation that needs to be leveled against those Jews is the fact that they don't take an interest in, in knowing what their people is all about. Their people are tortured to death throughout the centuries for what this thing means. And they have not even the interest to investigate what it means before rejecting it. These are people rejecting it without knowing that's an issue. I'm not talking about people intermarrying because they reject Jewish philosophy. Or they think it's wrong that there should be differences Jew and non-Jew. They have an ideological position. These are people who don't even know that it's an issue. These people have less awareness of their Judaism than any self-respecting Zulu on the streets of Durban. <laughs> knows about Jewish Zulu, Zulu history. There's not even the cultural or nationalistic interest over there. That could be an accusation that should be leveled against them. We've been, we've been through so much. There's no greater miracle, according to some of our sages, than the survival of the Jewish people. It far outstrips any of the explicit miracles that we ever saw in history is the survival of the Jewish people. Completely unprecedented, be nothing like that. To be part of that tradition, just, just, just in, by virtue of its outstanding difference from anything else that's ever occurred, surely should suggest the motivation to investigate what it means. And that's why there's an expression of such negativity about somebody who does such a thing, right? Even a person who has relatively little Jewish background, the issue should at least be raised before casting yourself out of the scream of what Jewish history is. A man, for example, who marries a non-Jewish woman, a Jewish woman, takes himself completely out of Jewish continuity. Children are not Jewish. His children are not Jewish. It makes no difference if you come along and say, well, I'm going to call them Jewish and raise them Jewish, or I'll go to some synagogue or so-called synagogue where they'll tell me that I can call my child Jewish. Whether you're Jewish or not is a spiritual concept. It's not up to human opinion. There's certain rules. There are rules in the spiritual world. It's an absolute and objective thing. It's not, not a matter of opinion. So you marry a non-Jewish woman. She might be a fine woman and the children might be wonderful, but they're not Jewish. So there's a break in the link of, of what it means. <coughs> you know, the major says, remarkable thing. Maybe I'll finish with this unless you have any specific questions. The major says that in the next world, there's an entrance to a dimension, uh, without using any words, but there's a dimension of suffering in the next world. There's a dimension of suffering. It's a, it's a, it's a state of existence in which we have to go through living the, the insensitivities and the pain and the harm that we caused, living exactly through those experiences as a way of burning away from our neshamas, our souls, the insensitivity that was caused by those things that we did that we shouldn't have done. Whatever name you want to give it, 
that is a concept that we have. There's a, there's a stage or a, or a phase of cleansing that we have to live through that thing. And it's extremely painful. The descriptions of the suffering of the soul in that world are, are indescribable. But the matter says a fascinating thing. It says that the entrance to that dimension of suffering <coughs> sits Abraham. Abraham Avinu, Abraham Avinu, the forefather of the Jewish people, sits at the entrance to that place. And as every Jew is about to enter, he pulls him out. Now, listen carefully to this. Here's a Jew. Get the picture. You have a dimension of suffering, of unspeakable pain, and it's fully deserved. There's nothing unfair up there. And as the Jew is about to enter, Avram Avinu sits at the entrance and he pulls him out and saves him. Jew doesn't have to go through that. Right? Except a Jew who's had a, an intimate relationship with a non-Jewish woman, except a Jew who's had a relationship with, with a non-Jewish woman, or has tried to undo his circumcision, right? to try to undo surgically that he shouldn't look circumcised. Right? Now, the question we have to ask here is, there are a few very difficult questions here. There were generations like that, where people tried to look uncircumcised in Greek times and other times. They didn't want to look circumcised. They wanted to look the same as the non-Jews. Didn't want to be distinguishable. The question we have to ask is like this. First of all, first of all, stay carefully with me. How can he pull somebody out who deserves to go in? What's going on? A person goes into that dimension of suffering because they deserve it. If a Jew is going to be put in there, it's because he's done things that make that necessary. How can somebody else pull me out? It's Christianity, right, that says that somebody else can suffer for your sins. We don't say that. You hear the, you hear the question? Anyone with me? Here's a Jew who's about to go into this dimension of suffering. Why? Because he deserves it. If he deserves it, how can somebody else pull him out? And secondly, how can it be, be a benefit to him? If he needs it, he needs it. Why? And secondly, why only those sins? Why does he save you from everything else? Listen carefully. Any other sin you've done... He pulls you out, you get saved. By, somehow he saves you. But that particular sin, you've got an intimate relationship with a non-Jewish woman, he can't save you. Why? Let's try and understand this. It's a fascinating thing to understand. You know what it means that he saves you? Do you know what it means that he... Is, he pull, you know, wh- what does it mean that Abraham Avinu pulls out Jews who deserve to be there? The concept is like this. We have a thing called Schus Abbas and Bris Abbas. It means our four... Put, put, uh, turn this... Stay through this with me. That Jew who deserves to go in there deserves it richly. But his great-great-grandfather, Avram Avinu, does not deserve the pain of seeing his grandchild hurt like that. You know why he gets pulled out? Not because he doesn't deserve to go there, but because the grandfather doesn't deserve the pain. Let me give an example. If you have a friend whom you love very dearly, and this person has done a lot for you, and you've, a tremendous bond exists between you, and one day your friend's child gets into trouble, or his grandchild gets into trouble, and he's in trouble, he's done things he shouldn't have done, would you not exert yourself for the grandchild, for the son, or the grandson of your friend? Yes, you would. You know why? Not because the kid doesn't deserve it. The kid deserves what he's getting. But you know the unbelievable pain that your friend will go through. The shame and the pain that your friend will go through when his son or grandson goes through what he's going to go through. So you know why you pull him out? Out of your loyalty and your love for your friend. Avram Avinu, that great forefather of the Jewish people who started this whole project on earth, has such an incredible credit balance with Hashem. He's such a close friend of Hashem's, as it were. He has such incredible merit. He lifted himself to such unbelievable extremes. He was ready to give up his child for Hashem because his love for him was so great that when one of his children gets into trouble, Hashem owes it to him to pull that kid out. Do you understand? I see it. Not all of you seem to understand. If you... You know that kind of country club where they're very... You must know in this country. Very posh. You're only allowed in there with a black tie and all that. 
Imagine one day at one of those very fancy country clubs, and it's a youngster knocks at the door, and the butler opens the door. You know the chap with the white gloves and the... And there on the doorstep, he sees this mangy-looking, disheveled, grimy adolescent, huh? in his sandals and his shorts. So the kid says he wants to be led into the club. You know what the butler does? He unceremoniously slams the door. But as he slams the door, the youngster puts his foot in, and he holds the door ajar, and he quietly says his surname. And it happens to be the surname of the founder of the club. Right? He's the son or grandson of the founder of the club. Do you know what the chap with the white gloves does? He takes him into the VIP lounge and brings him a whiskey. That's what he does. <laughs> you know why? Because his father founded the club. They don't owe it to him. He's breaking the rules. But the club wouldn't be there if it weren't for you understand what's happening? And therefore, when Abba Mabin sits at the entrance to Gehenna, the meaning is that, of course, this Jew deserves to go in. You don't have any merits to pull you out. But he's got a credit balance that he doesn't deserve the pain of seeing a child and a grandchild of his go through that. And therefore, because of his merit, you get pulled out. But a Jew's had an intimate relationship with a non-Jewish woman. Do you know what the problem is? Do you know why it's pulling you out? Because you're a grandchild, that's why. Because all you have going for you is that you're a link in the chain. That's all. You have nothing else going for you. This miserable individual who's about to go in there, who's got no spiritual merit at all, has never worked on himself at all or done anything. At least he has his Jewish identity. you know why? Because his parents went through hell to be Jews. And his grandparents went through torture to be Jews. And his great-grandparents were killed and, and, and brutalized. Brutalized and killed that he should be Jewish. But all he has going for him is that he's a link in the chain. Rav Jester says that some Jews have so little merit that they're like a worthless little circle in a chain that attaches a watch. Yes, a person wears a watch that's attached to him by a chain. Every little link is almost worthless, but it's absolutely critical because it keeps the watch attached. The some Jews have no merit in history, no merit at all in history, other than that they form the link in the chain that keeps Judaism going. So this individual is about to go in there who is absolutely nothing, no contribution of his own. But he's there because he's part of the, co- of the covenant. That intimate relationships between man and woman in Jewish history have always been maintained that way. That's the reason that he's there. So he now takes the only thing that he has left, the fact that he's, that he's, that he's the result of that form of intimacy, and he's put that into a place of disloyalty outside of the Jewish people. So what does he have? What does he have? He cannot be recognized. He's not recognized by Abraham Avinu. He doesn't look like a grandchild anymore. And that's why, it's not, that's why it's not pulled out. That's what's unique about that sin. It's not worse than murder. It's not worse than... There are plenty of other things that are, that, are, that are grossly worse. But it's the uniqueness of the attachment of Jewish people throughout the ancient. His grandparents, his great-grandparents back in Spain 600 years ago, they were tortured to death. You know why they were tortured? You know, some accounts say that the Catholic Church killed more Jews than the Germans over the centuries. You know why? And you know how they killed them? By torture. They didn't kill them efficiently like the Germans did. They weren't interested in killing them. They wanted to torture them. You know why? Not because they were sadistic. They wanted to convert them to Christianity. That's why. Do you know that throughout history, do you know that throughout all of Jewish history, until 50 years ago, Jews were never killed without being given a choice. You know that? We have no example of Jews on record, as far as I know, by and large, where Jews were murdered without being given a choice. We don't want to kill you. We just want you to convert. All you have to do is kiss the cross and go home. You'll be an honored, respected member of our society. If you don't, we'll burn you to death. We'll torture you. Why? Because they wanted to force them to convert so they could save their souls. They devised that, that 50 years ago, unfortunately, and all of our modern authorities say, that Jews were destroyed without being given any choice because they were already chosen wrongly. We'd already defaulted on our, on our Jewish identity and our, our flamingly strong 
desire and ability to go through torture and anything for Hashem's sake. We, we wouldn't have that anymore. Therefore, He had to destroy us to make a Kiddush Hashem on our backs without giving us a choice. But in previous generations, Jews were great enough to make a choice and be murdered and brutalized and make the right choice, and they weren't afraid. Do you know that the, the, the Catholic Church institutionalized torture? They have engravings of it that they look up to today. You know that? They devised methods of torture that would... The Spanish had a thing called the bastinado. You know what a bastinado is? He used to tie a Jew up with his feet over a fire, cut the soles of his feet and put butter in, and roast his feet. Why? And they did that to little children in front of their parents and wives in front of their husbands. Do you know why? Kiss the cross. That's all we want. We don't want to torture you. We want, just want you to convert to Christianity. We're trying to save your soul. All you have to do is kiss the crucifix and say you accept Christianity and you'll have everything you want. And they went through that. They went through that. They went through that on mass. Millions upon millions of little children went through that. Do you know what that means? Do you know how many Jewish communities were burned to death in their shul? Singing Alena and singing Shema. All they had to do was come out. They had to sneak out the door, go and kiss their cross. They would pretend and go home. They wouldn't do that. Whole communities chose to die in the flames. We say that about ourselves today. And today, these people who are intermarrying, they don't even know that that happened. They don't even know that that's why they're here? Don't you think that at least owe it to Jewish tradition, at least to the nationalistic and traditional sense of what it means to belong to a people, to at least investigate what it means before ideologically reject it? You want to reject it, reject it. But to go and do it without even knowing, so that means that those people died so that you can be here, you don't even acknowledge that it happened to the extent that you give it two minutes thought. But that's what it is. When the, when the blurring of the distinction takes place, so they're not even issue at all, just not part of the consciousness of the generation. There's a very basic issue here of loyalty and of attachment, but long before any spiritual conceptions. There's a quality of, of, of tenacious dedication to something that has been your point of origin that should be a baseline human characteristic. Right? A person gets into an ideological study and they decide to reject it, that's one thing. But not even to have a sense of any obligation of loyalty, of any sense of continuity, of any wonder at this miracle that is the Jewish people that has remained, not even heaven. That is... Uh, that is, a, that is a tragedy of major proportions. What are the questions that, um, that I can deal with? What about those people who wish to convert to Judaism? Well, I feel so strongly that they wish to convert to Judaism. Sure. Obviously, to an objective mind, they appear to have that, that desire, that sense of belonging. Right. So let's talk about that briefly. It's very important in this discussion. They're not, they're not permitted to convert. Why not? No one's ever allowed to convert. Why not? Why shouldn't they be? I mean, I've heard of... Why shouldn't they be allowed to come in? I've heard of a particular example. Okay, we'll be a second. Let's try and make this clear. Okay, stay just one second. Hold it. Yeah, yeah. Does the soul change if you go through it? Conversion? It's completely reborn. Completely and utterly. It's not related to previous relatives. It's absolutely newborn. The only thing is that that newborn soul carries with it some of the previous sins that need to be answered for, but in a very, very minor way. Because there's still... The Gemara says, why did you take so long to convert? <laughs> <laughs> that's accountable. The person who was going to do it anyway and had that... But that's not our subject. So let's try and make this clear. Somebody's now in a relationship with a non-Jew, a very close relationship, and, and, and has all the ingredients that it could be a very productive and good relationship. They'd like to get married. Is conversion an option? Okay? Is conversion an option? Let's try and make this clear. Today, in our generation... 
any non-Jew, we don't have any category of non-Jew today who wishes to convert who's forbidden from converting. Huh? But there are some requirements. There are some requirements for conversion. If somebody comes to me and says practically, and a young man came here a few weeks ago and sat down and said, he's engaged to this non-Jewish woman, he's got a religious sister who told him to come here and see a rabbi. He's not interested, makes no difference to him, he's, but he's just like in allegiance to his you know, sister's opinion, he's coming to find out. And one of the things he wanted to know was about conversion. In fact, they decided that this woman would go through a, refer- a reform conversion. He wanted to know what was its status, what will be its consequences, etc. Let's make it plain. Let's take conversion outside of a marital situation. A person wants to convert a non-Jew. They have no prohibition at all. The law is that we try to discourage such a person. We try very powerfully to turn them away. The reason, there are many reasons. The primary reason is that it should be absolutely plain to this person that they are doing it against resistance and only because ideologically they want it. You have to say to such a person, uh, do you know what prohibitions are involved in being Jewish? Do you know you may one, be, one day be under extreme duress? We, have a, we don't have a very anti-Semitic environment right now, but there have been generations in Jewish history where you may be, who knows what may be done to you because you're Jewish. Are you aware of that? Do you know what prohibitions you'll have to take on? Do you know how extreme they will be? We tell him the light ones, we tell him the, seri- the serious ones. We're trying to make sure that this person is doing it out of ideological reasons, knowing that it's going to be difficult, not because he thinks, uh, I don't know, he's going to get some benefits or it's like a nice thing to do culturally or he's like always admired Jewish food or something. <laughs> we want to make sure, right? and therefore we turn the person away. There are other reasons. There are Kabbalistic and spiritual reasons too. One of the reasons, for example, it says that non-Jews are like a cancer to the Jewish people. Converts. You know why? You know what the opinions that explain that say? Because when they're Jews not living up to their Jewish values, and this here, non-Jew, takes it on voluntarily. Do you know how bad it makes us look? Do you know what, do you know what a sickness it causes to the Jewish people? Do you understand that? Here's a Jew, right? Who doesn't even care about his Jewish identity. Here's this non-Jew who didn't have to, who's taken it on ideologically because he appreciates what it is. It makes us look very, very bad. Do you understand? That's another reason. It's a big credit to him, but do, do we need that? Do we need that? There are other Kabbalistic sources. The Zohar says that any non-Jew converts to Judaism stood at Sinai originally. This non-Jewish soul stood at Sinai originally with the Jewish people. And there are two different explanations. One is that they're a lost Jewish soul that somehow progressed through history and has now found its way back. And we have definite cases of that. And the other explanation is a much more deep Kabbalistic explanation that they, they weren't part of and got lost. But they, they, they have a spark of that original energy, whatever that means. But we've certainly seen cases of the former. I mean, Dovatman told me that he was once visiting he was once visiting a friend at the University of California, professor at the university, and as he walked into the room there was a non Jewish visitor who was visiting at the same time. And as this non Jew walked in, he saw the mezuzah on the door. So he said to the professor, What is this? And the professor, who was a religious Jew, started explaining what a mezuzah was. In the middle of the conversation he got called away to the phone, and a young graduate student was a Mexican girl, young girl from Mexico who'd come up to, to California, she was studying in, in, in UCLA, and she k- continued the explanation. This young Spanish-speaking Mexico, Mexican Catholic girl starts telling this other non-Jew all about mezuzahs. So at the end of the conversation, Rav Wasserman said to his friend, how does that non-Jewish Catholic girl know so much about mezuzahs? So the professor said, I don't know, she tells me that for some strange reason she's, taken a fascin- she's got, got fascinating interest in Judaism and for no known reason she started studying voraciously and reading all she can about Judaism and she's become fascinated by anything Jewish. Rav said to him, ask her to go back and ask people in her village where she came a little small, a small village in Mexico if any of them come from Portugal or Spain. 
Because Rav knew, it's well known that certain Maranos, right, who were Jews, who, do you know what they found? They went back to the girls' village, and they found that a number of women in that village, listen carefully to this, Spanish-speaking Mexican women, Catholic, observant church-going Catholic women, every Friday night when the sun goes down, they go down to the basement and they light two candles. They don't know why, but their mother told them that it was tradition in their family. Do you understand this? They go down to the, which is what the Moranos did. They practiced Catholicism in the street, and in the basement, and in private, they maintained Jews. There are Mexican ladies who go to church on Sunday, and on Friday night when the sun goes down, they go and light two candles in the basement. Do you understand? That's where she came from, this girl. Not at all. Some, I think, may even know that there's some connection. In this particular village, there were a group of ladies who had no knowledge at all, but it was handed down to them by their mothers and grandmothers that this is something that we do. Can you imagine such a thing? And here's a daughter of that family who's now voraciously reading anything she can get her hands on. It's a fascinating thing. Fascinating thing. Anyway, but um, that's the law of conversion. Now, listen well. What do you need in order to convert? First of all, we try and push such a person, person away, we try and discourage them, we tell them they don't need it. The Rambam says that you don't need to convert. The Rambam says in terms of who's better and not better, the Rambam brings down definitively that a non-Jew has a share in the world to come just like a Jew. You don't need to be Jewish. We say to this person, what do you need it for? It's only trouble. We were born with it, so we have to do it. But you don't need it, and you'll never be able to undo it. You can never unconvert. Once you do it, your life's on the line here, and you commit it for the rest of your life. Why do you need it? You want a share in the world to come? That's your argument. Be a good non-Jew. How do you be a good non-Jew? You do what the Torah says a non-Jew has to do. Just like the Torah tells you what a Kohen has to do, and a lady, and a man, and a woman, and a child, and over 20 and under 20, it says what a non-Jew has to do. What does a non-Jew have to do? It's explicit in the Torah. A non-Jew has to observe seven laws, not 613 like we do. Seven laws, but they're much more exacting than ours. Those seven laws are much more exacting. There's no tolerance in them. There's a death sentence for all of them, unlike ours. There's only seven, but they're very, very demanding. It's a completely different system. And there are non-Jews today who look like that, you know that? There's a church in Tennessee, do you know this? There's an Owenite church, do you know that? Yes. There's a church in Tennessee of fundamentalist Christians who started asking, and I happen to know them. They started asking some questions about Christianity, and they were unsatisfied with the answers. They eventually found a rabbi in Baltimore who answered their questions. They decided to observe the Torah. They went back home, they took the steeple off their church and they threw out all the crucifixes <laughs> and they, they started a movement called the Noahide Church and they have a rabbi who teaches them. Rabbi Bowman goes there to teach them how to read Chumash for non-Jews and they learn the laws of the Noahide nations. I, I know a family where there are five boys in Yeshiva who converted to Judaism from, from that community. The father hasn't converted. He comes to learn in Jerusalem when he can. He's got a broad Tennessee accent. He's a non-Jew from Tennessee and he proudly lives the Noahide laws, yes. Do many, Jew, do many non-Jews know that those are the laws they should be observing? No. Do many Jews today know what the laws are they should be observing? No. Good, but they don't know. But that's what they're obliged to do, there's seven laws. So we say to this non-Jew, what do you have to be Jewish for? The Raman says if a non-Jew wants to share in the world to come, the requirement is they have to observe the laws of the non-Jews because it says so in the Jewish Torah that was given at Sinai. That's the condition. Not just be nice, good people and observe the laws and don't kill and don't tear a limb off an animal, etc., etc. That's not good enough. You have to do those seven things because it says so in the Torah that was given at Sinai. What's the logic for that? The logic is, you want to live in the next world, you have to invest there. If you live in this world like a good person, then you get this world. You don't get a transcendent, infinite, eternal world unless you invest there. You have to live like a good person in this world because it comes from that world. If he invested over there and he lives here as a moral non-Jew, because there's a spiritual goal and a spiritual eternity and so forth and he invests in that reality as a sharing. So why does he have to be Jewish? You understand? Therefore the requirements are despite all that he wants to be Jewish which means he's got to take on mitzvahs sincerely. He's got to take on Judaism sincerely. He's got to practice. 
Second, he has to go to mikveh. He has to be immersed in a mikveh. This is where baptism comes from. Lahabdu. And third, he's got to be circumcised if he's a man. Those are the three things. He needs all of that. This raises a problem with a boy and a girl who want to get married. Why? They are most extremely dissuaded and discouraged from conversion. Why? Because there's a doubt about whether the desire to be Jewish is sincere. As they, does this girl want to embrace Judaism or a Jewish boy? That's the problem. <laughs> it's hard to tell. Do you understand? If she comes along and says, I want to be Jewish, and we say, well, is there a boy in the background? Yes. Well, now, one second. Do you want to be Jew? And third, he's got to be circumcised if he's a man. Those are the three things. He needs all of that. This raises a problem with a boy and a girl who want to get married. Why? They are most extremely dissuaded and discouraged from conversion. Why? Because there's a doubt about whether the desire to be Jewish is sincere. As they, does this girl want to embrace Judaism or a Jewish boy? That's the problem. <laughs> it's hard to tell. Do you understand? If she comes along and says, I want to be Jewish, and we say, well, is there a boy in the background? Yes. Well, now, one second. Do you want to be Jewish because you're prepared to undergo torture and all that Judaism is and die for it, etc., etc.? Because it means so much to you? Or because you want to marry a Jew? If you want to marry a Jew, then there's a doubt about the sincerity of the, of the... It doesn't mean she's not sincere. She might want to marry a Jewish boy and be intrinsically sincere as well. But it's very hard to tell. And therefore, in such cases, they are even more discouraged in order to sort out, you understand, that's the issue. There's another problem as well. And that is that, like I told this young man who came here, he wants his fiancé to convert to Judaism. They're going to reform. Why? No Orthodox based in will convert her. Why? Because he has to be religious. Never mind her. He has to be practicing. What, what kind of conversion will it be of a woman who's not going to marry a Jewish man, who's not going to live up to all the laws that she'll need to observe, understand? It's ridiculous. And therefore, what, is the rules, what are the requirements? That first of all, we have to sort out that she's sincere absolutely, that we could so convince ourselves that even if he weren't there or would disappear, she'd still want to be Jewish. Is that true? And secondly, is he going to live up to it? Otherwise, how is she going to function? Do you understand? So the tremendous difficulty, but it could be done. It could be done. In many cases, the people have gone through it. It takes a long time. They've got to study thoroughly. They don't really know what they're about. And they have to convert and then show evidence that they met it sincerely by the fact that they practice and they live up to it. It's a long road. Well, in terms of a person, we're going to have to stop the questions now. It's good we've got another group of people waiting to come in. And it looks like we're going to have to arrange and have a separate special talk on the topic of conversion. I can see just from the need for questions and that.